Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. The Bible routinely recognizes the subordination of the Son to His Father. Throughout His ministry on earth, Jesus repeatedly and unapologetically taught, The Father is greater than I. Further, after his exaltation, Jesus remains dependent on the Father as his superior. Then, even once the age to come arrives, the Son will remain in subjection to the Father forever. In addition to covering many of these subordination texts, we will also consider what Jesus meant when he said, I and my Father are one in John 10.30. And we'll overview some of the possibilities for interpreting John 1.1. Here now is part six of our One God Overall class, episode 416, Jesus, God's Subordinate Son. Number six, Jesus, God's Subordinate Son. We looked at last time, Jesus is the Messiah the chosen one, God's anointed one, to rule over everyone. (laughs) It's just really incredible series of facts about Jesus, that that he would be the the one he's chosen, you know, from birth, before he was born. I mean, prophesied, you know. I would imagine for Jesus, it would have been easy to be prideful. Like, if you're a human being, and you're like halfway good at something, it's easy to be prideful at that thing, whatever it is, and just think you're, you know, you're good at it, whatever it might be. And so this time what I want to look at is how did Jesus think about himself? How did Jesus think about himself? And we had already seen what Jesus thought about God. We looked at the Shema and how he believed the same God as the scribe and how he, we saw throughout Scripture there's the God of Jesus, God of Jesus, or my God, my God, and that sort of thing. Uh, but what did, what did he think about himself? That's really the question that I have today in, in relationship to God, not just in general, but in his relationship to God. And what we find in Scripture, I'd just like to divide out into three categories. Uh, these are different kind of subordination statements. Subordination is that somebody is above somebody else. Somebody is below somebody else. Does that make sense? So like at your job, the boss is the superior. You are the subordinate. If you have somebody that works for you, they are your subordinate, you are the authority. If you're a police officer, everybody's your subordinate when they're breaking the law, I guess. I don't know know how that works, but you see what I mean by subordinate? I'm not trying to say anything rude. It's just a fact of any hierarchy, you know, workplace or even like a, a sports team. You have a captain who tells other people what to do, whether it's cheerleading or football or whatever. You have this set up. So I want to look at uh, three groups of text, ministry on earth, Christ's ministry on earth. I want to look at his ministry in heaven and then look at his ministry in the future. I want to divide out everything the Bible says about Jesus on this subject into those three categories and then just march through. So we'll start with while Jesus was on earth, what did he say about himself and his relationship to God? And for that, we have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have some other statements here and there, some in the Old Testament, some other places, but I'm just going to mainly focus on the Gospel of John because it's really just full of stuff on this subject. John 5.37 says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. 
This phrase, the Father who sent me, occurs astounding 41 times in the Gospel of John alone. 41 times. Unbelievable. Gospel of John is only 21 chapters. 41 times Jesus says, the Father sent me. It's got to be a major point that he's making. Now look, to be sent does not require that you're a subordinate. I guess it's possible that an equal could send an equal, or a lower person could send a higher person. But generally, in their world, and at that time, for example, Jesus said, John 13, 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than one who sent him. Jesus said that himself. In the midst of saying, God sent me, or the Father sent me, 41 times, Jesus says, well, the one who sent is not greater than the one that sent him. Think about, for example, the centurion. The centurion sent uh, somebody to Jesus. I don't remember who, but he sent somebody to Jesus and said, hey, can you come and heal my servant? You know, did the centurion send another centurion? No. Did the centurion send the Roman emperor? No, he sent some servant of his, you know, somebody that was uh, a subordinate. And that's pretty typical for how sending usually works. Uh, the other thing I want to point out about this is the father-son terminology. God is the father, Jesus is the son. In the culture of the time, such a designation implied an inequality of authority, with any father typically understood to be superior to his son. Wayne Grudem writes, in the biblical world, there were no commendable examples of a son not being in subject to his father or not deferring to the leadership role that still belonged to the father, even when the son had grown to adulthood. Jesus could have easily called God his friend, his neighbor, his fellow worker, or his twin brother. Ideas that would imply equality and that were readily available in the culture. Jesus called him Father. Now look, could there be some new way of understanding Father and Son? Sure. But then Jesus has to give that explanation. Otherwise, people are just going to assume that their currently existing understanding of a father being superior to a son is what Jesus means when he says, the Father sent me. And so this is another indication of his subordination during his earthly ministry. Uh, but there's more. There's more. The Gospel of John is just full of these statements. John 3.34. These are all from the Gospel of John. And I just want you to sort of like hear the way Jesus talks about God. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. John 4.34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 5.19, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6.38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 7.16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. John 7, 28, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. 
I do nothing, John 8, 28, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. John 8, 29, he who sent me is with me and has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. John 8, 38, I speak of what I have seen with my Father. John 8, 42, if God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. And I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. John ten twenty seven, and also verse 29. My sheep hear my voice. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. John twelve forty nine. I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Look at that. John 14.10 The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. John 14.28 The strongest one in the whole Bible. I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. John 14.31 I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. I do as the Father has commanded me. And last of all, John 17, verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Over and over, Jesus describes his relationship with his Father as being one of a subordinate. God is the one who sent him. God planned what Jesus would do. God empowered him with the works God gave him the words, commanded him what to say and what to speak, and Jesus obediently carried it out. In John 12, 44, we read, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me. Isn't that funny? Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Jesus was transparent. When you looked at Jesus, you saw through Jesus to God. John 13, 20. Whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So you're supposed to be transparent to Jesus. When people see you, they're supposed to see Jesus. And when they see Jesus, they're supposed to see God. You see how that works? It's like a chain reaction there. This is the most famous one. John 14, verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. You could just imagine this moment. They're at the Last Supper. Jesus is talking about my father this, my father that. And Philip's just like, just show us the father, Jesus. Just, just show us the father, right? That'll be enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I, this is a huge moment, right? Have I been so long with you and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus here is not claiming to be the Father. That's not what he's saying. What Jesus is claiming here is that when you see him, you see the Father. Because he's speaking the words of the Father, he's doing the works of the Father, He's carrying out the plan of the Father. To see Jesus is to see the Father. Does that make sense? 
one of the clearest places to see this is at Gethsemane. In Mark 14, 36, Jesus is there. He's in agony. He's in prayer to the Father, he says. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. To me, that's the definition of subordination. If you are a subordinate to someone, whether you're a child or whether you're in the workplace or wherever you are, if you're subordinate to someone, you're saying, well, what do you want me to do? Right? That's what you're saying. It's funny, my kids don't act this way. They don't really act like subordinates, <laughs> even though they're supposed to be my subordinates as their father. They, I, I try to think if they've ever said this to me. Not my will, but yours, O oh Father. You know, that... <laughs> Anyhow, side, side point. Side po- I, my kids are great, by the way. They're wonderful people. Wonderful people. All right, so that's, that's point one. Ministry on earth. Let's move to his ministry in heaven. And look, that's not controversial. Everybody knows that in Jesus' ministry on earth, he was subordinate to God, to the Father. Everybody knows that. Okay? I just wanted to, to show it to you because it's just so powerful. You know, I don't want you to miss out on it. Let's go ahead and look at ministry in heaven. Here are four places in the book of Acts where Jesus is called a servant. Now, this, is, this should just grab you by the shirt and just like shake you like... What? How could you possibly call Jesus a servant if he's resurrected, ascended, seated at the right hand of God, far above all rule and authority and power and every name, and you're going to call him a servant? I don't even know if I would do it. I'm I'm honest. I'm like, I don't even know if I would use that term. But the Bible did. Acts 3.13 The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. Isn't that something? God having raised up his servant Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 26, 427, your holy servant Jesus. 430, your holy servant Jesus. So there's still, even though Jesus is now at the right hand of God, referring to him, and these uh, last two in chapter 4 are actually in a prayer, and these ones are in a, a sermon. They're preaching to people. They're still talking about Jesus as though he's a subordinate to God. That's what a servant is. A servant is under somebody's authority, not a co-equal. When he expresses gratitude, Paul gives thanks to God through Jesus Christ. When he blesses, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he prays, he petitions the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he gives glory, it's to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. However, Christ is a servant in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. It's all about God. This is now dipping into the epistles. Now, we're, we've left the Gospels behind. We've, we've seen that. I, I basically just focused on the Gospel of John because it makes the biggest deal about this, that Jesus is subordinate to the Father. Now we're looking at Christ's heavenly situation and we're saying people are still calling him a servant. Wow. But even in like these other places like Romans 7 and Ephesians 3 and 2 Corinthians 1 and Ephesians 1 and Romans 15 and Ephesians 3, all these different places where we find these different statements about God and Jesus that Paul makes in particular, we see over and over that Paul directs his focus at God through Jesus, or in the name of Jesus. Um, And so that practice, I think, indicates a subordinate relationship as well. Romans 6, verse 10, these two really got my attention. 
For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. This is talking about Jesus. I mean, when Romans is written, is way after the crucifixion, way after the resurrection, way after the ascension. You know, probably two decades afterward, give or take. Two, two to three decades afterward. So, Jesus is already alive. He's been alive for a long time in heaven, right? And it says he, the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even his current life is to God, uh, which is pretty vague, but it makes the point that he's not elevated to the same status. He's, he's still recognizing God's superiority. 2 Corinthians 13.4 is similar. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Even in his ascended position, he's still living by the power of God. And besides, Christ in his heavenly ministry still functions as an intermediary. We'll get to that in a second. Look at these two others, 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 3.21 says, For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. What? What do you mean Christ is God's? Well, in the flow of thought, this is expressing this idea of subordination again, that, that, that God is above Christ, that, that he is in some way superior. 1 Corinthians 11.3 is much clearer. The head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. That's crystal clear. There's, there's nothing to debate about that. I mean, God is the head of Christ now. Now, if you said that while he's on earth, that's one thing, right? But we're saying that now. I mean, Jesus is so elevated. I don't know. I'm not making the rules. If, if God wanted to, if the Father wanted to elevate the Son to a position where they were co-equal, I'm not going to complain, what do I have to do with it, right? But that's not, in fact, what we read. What we read is that the head of Christ is God. And so what is Christ doing in heaven? Well, he's serving as an intermediary. Why do you need an intermediary? Because you have somebody that's above you or somebody that is, you know, other, and then you have another person or group of people that are in need of mediation, right? So he's a go-between between humanity and God. More specifically, the church and God, right? So we have these three terms, the high priest, intercessor, and mediator. Those three terms are all ideas that work with this sense of subordination, especially high priest. There is no high priest in the world that serves an equal. In their world or our world, a priest is always serving a God who is greater than that priest. There's no example of a priest that serves an equal. And we see this play out. This intermediary role, we see this play out in Revelation 1.1. If you, if you uh, take a look at that sometime. Revelation 1.1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants. You see how that works? So God gives Jesus this revelation, and Jesus then is a messenger who gives that to the servants. He is the intermediary between God and humanity, as uh, 1 Timothy 2.5 says. All right, so what about Christ's ministry in the future? What about Christ's ministry in the future? Is Christ awaiting a day yet in the future when he will be elevated to co-equal status with the Father? Or is he going to continue in a subordinate role to the Father? 
Matthew chapter 20, verse 23 says, this is uh, kind of a funny incident, but uh, these guys or their mother, it's not clear to me which, uh, comes before Jesus and says, can we be on your right and left hand in your kingdom? And this is what Jesus says, to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now look, this kingdom, I know there's a, there are present aspects to the kingdom, there are future aspects to the kingdom. This is, this is talking about the future when Jesus returns, he sits on his throne, he conquers, right? This is what this is talking about. This is what they're thinking about. And they're, and they're saying to Jesus, like, hey, can we be like vice president and secretary of state? You know, like, can, can we like, can you hook us up, right? That's what you do. You know somebody that's powerful, somebody that's famous, somebody that's wealthy, and you say, can you think of the little people, my friend? Can you think of the little people? Can you, can you give me a position? I've been, I've been walking with you on these dusty roads, can you, can you hook me up? <laughs> it's so human, right? And Jesus, said, Jesus doesn't say, you guys are knuckleheads and I don't want you in my cabinet. No, he doesn't say that. Jesus says, it's actually not mine to give. I'm not in charge of the positions in my own kingdom. Wow. That tells me that even in the future, Jesus is submitting to the Father's will when it comes to these kinds of uh, kingdom issues. Psalm 110.1 is a prophecy that says, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. So this, this prophecy here in Psalm 110, this prophecy, or this oracle, as they call it, is talking about how God is the active agent and the one who's sitting at his right hand is waiting. Sit at my right hand. Who's, who's giving the shots? How does, how does authority work? How does subordination work? The person in charge gives commands and then the subordinate follows them. So God says, or Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Like, hey, just come here and then I'm going to do this other thing. And then after that happens, Yahweh will send forth from Zion your mighty scepter. God is going to empower him to take that position in the future. Hebrews 10.13 puts it this way, that Jesus is in heaven waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Jesus is awaiting God. And it's interesting, too, because when Jesus talks about the timing of this, he says, no, nobody knows, not even, not even the angels nor the Son of Man, only the Father, the day or the hour. And then later on in Acts chapter 1, his disciples ask him, because he, he say, oh, the Spirit's coming soon. You're going to get poured out in the Spirit. And they're like, oh, is this the time for the kingdom to be restored to Israel? And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, you know, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. The Father still has this supreme position with regard to the future. And then the key clincher text is 1 Corinthians 15 uh, really starting in verse 24, but I'm going to read 24 and 27 to 28. Then comes the end, when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Down to verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, 
then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So this is talking about the eternal state. So this is almost like post-kingdom, if you, if you want to use that terminology, right? So like there's the conquering of the nations, all this stuff that prophesied about throughout the Bible. Then finally, death itself is destroyed. And uh, it talks about that uh, right, right in this area too. And then it says, and then once he's subjected everything, once Christ, the king, has subjected everything, he'll subject himself to God forever so that God will be all in all. Really, really a powerful verse. All right, so let me just summarize. The father planned salvation, commissioned his son, authorized him as his agent, empowered him with miraculous powers, guided him in his ministry, provided him the words to speak, instructed him to give his life, raised him from the dead, elevated him to his right hand, poured out the Spirit through him, appointed him a priest to intercede in his heavenly ministry, and will one day send him back to restore our world. You see, it's all God's doing. Everything that happens through the Messiah is God's doing. Then, when the end comes, he will turn everything back over to his Father so that God may be all in all. The Father is the supreme authority who directs his subordinate Son to do the work of salvation. Now, check this out. This is, this is relevant for you and for me. From the Son, we see a loyal and loving heart, willing to heroically obey his Father, even when it costs everything. He provides the quintessential model for what humanity can be when totally dependent on God. When we look at Jesus, we don't see a Jesus who's like, Oh, Father. Oh, God. Do I have to do that too? You know, like some people are like that. You ask them to do something... Like, sometimes I, I do that to my wife. She says, can you take out the garbage? And I'm like, oh, gosh. I already did that yesterday, right? <laughs> we have a lot of garbage in our house. But, you know, it, Jesus didn't have that attitude, did he? He's joyfully obeying the Father. He's willingly giving his life. Not that he didn't wrestle with it. He wrestled with it. We saw that in Gethsemane. He wrestled with it. But in the end, he said, all right, not my will, but yours be done. You know, he, he worked it around to decide to do the Father's will. Let's look at a couple of uh, challenging verses here. You've got you to have at least a couple of challenge verses, right? What about John 10, 30? I and the Father are one. Clear as day. There it is, man. We're one. It's obviously talking about one God, one essence, one substance, one nature. It's, it's clearly an ontological statement. It's not clear to me that that's what's going on here. But I don't think... John 10.30 is talking about how Jesus is claiming to be the Almighty. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think he's talking about sheep. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What's he talking about? He's not talking about his essence, his nature, his divinity, his deity. He's not talking about a hypostatic union or any of these other later complicated ideas. What he's just saying is that, look, these sheep, 
that the father gave me. He didn't even get his own sheep. The father gave him his sheep. And he already said right here, right? The father is greater than all, right? Like it's right in the exact area. What he's saying is, look, I'm taking care of the sheep. I'm protecting the sheep. Nobody's going to snatch them out of my hand. My father is protecting the sheep. My father, nobody's going to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. He's saying that we are united. We're in one purpose in caring for the sheep. We're functioning together. It's very easy if you read the, what is it, three verses before it, it makes perfect sense. Sometimes people get tripped up in the Gospel of John because uh, Jesus' enemies are always freaking out and attacking him or trying to kill him. I just, a word of caution on that. You don't want to side with the enemies of Jesus. You know, like they're generally misunderstanding what he's saying. We don't want to take their misunderstanding as our doctrine. Uh, we want to recognize that Jesus didn't always say things in a way that's clear. A lot of times he said things, especially in the Gospel of John, in a way that could be taken two different meanings, and they took the wrong... Don't go with their meaning, okay? Go with uh, the disciples' meaning or the, uh, whatever the other meaning is. All right, let's look at John 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, just going to make a couple of remarks on this verse because it comes up a lot. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then we skip down to verse 14 where it says... And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we have a little equation here that a lot of people would make from these verses. They'll say, well, look, it says the word in verse 1, and it says the word was God, right? So the word equals God. And then in verse 14, it says glory as of the only Son from the Father. The word became flesh and it was talk, talking about the Son. So that's the, kind of the equation that people will make. Say, well, see, the Word is just like another way of talking about God, the Son. You see how that terminology all kind of like flows out of this? I'm just not sure that's really the right way to be looking at this. I, I think you probably suspected I was going to say something like that. What is the Word? Are we talking about the Bible? I don't think so. Are we talking about Microsoft? No, definitely not Microsoft, right? But I bring that up because, like, if you ask, if you ask the Internet, which I did because I was looking up, like, pictures for things, right? So I typed in the word Word into the Internet and under images, and the first thing that came up was Microsoft Word. And I'm like, this is not at all what I'm thinking. But that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. You, if your context is wrong, you can misdefine something some word as simple as word. You might think it's talking about the Bible. You might think it's talking about a word processor. Both of those are obviously wrong. So what else is there that we can work with here in the Bible that would explain this? Uh, so I, I'm going to give five options just because I love options. Although many of us are used to reading son for word right from the beginning, this is not what the prologue says. In fact, the word or word, capital or lowercase word, does not become flesh until verse 14. This is when we see his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. So what I'm saying is you can't read verse 14 into verse 1 because there's, there's time, there's a chronology. It's not at the same, contemporaneous, it's not at the same time. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, you know, he talks about creation, and he talks about the light was in the world. He talks about John the Baptist, and then he says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You can't read that back in. There's sequence in the prologue. Prologue's just the, the first uh, section of John. 
first uh, 14 verses uh, or 18 verses, whatever it is. Uh, he goes on, thus the exegete has at least five possibilities. Number one, the word is a circumlocution for God in action, like his wisdom or spirit. A circumlocution is where you say one word because you want to go around saying the other word. Okay, so uh, when the prodigal son sins and comes to himself, he says, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Talking to his dad. Heaven is a circumlocution for God. He doesn't want to say God, so he says, I sinned against heaven. It's just a substitute word. So that, you know, it's like speaking around something. And for the Jews, this was actually a very common practice around the time of Christ, as we can see in the Targums. The Targums are Aramaic translations read in synagogue services. And they will very frequently talk about the word of the Lord in places that in the Bible it just says the Lord. So they will substitute in the word memra, which is the Aramaic word for word, instead of saying God as a circumlocution. Uh, so that's one option. Option number two is that the word personifies an attribute of God, like wisdom in Proverbs 8 or love in 1 Corinthians 13. These are poetic sections of personification where something that is not actually a person is spoken of as if it were a person in order to emphasize it or make some point. Number three, the word refers to a pre-existent, though subordinate, being. I think that's pretty clear. So that's like something on par of an angel or one of the sons of God, something like that, that this being existed before and then became Jesus. That's another possibility. Possibility number four is uh, the word refers to someone who shares God's divine nature but is distinct in person. That certainly is a possibility for John 1.1. And that's the classic Trinity theory works on that uh, hypothesis. And then number five, don't want to leave out the oneness, brethren. The word just is God the Father. Some people believe that the word just is the Father called modalism or Sabellianism. We have terms for all these things. It's just so, so much fun talking about it. But uh, <laughs> my point is simply this. There are lots of different ways to define the word word, at least five that I can come up with. Uh, maybe there are others. What is the point, though? What is the point? The point, really, is verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. I think that is just such an incredible way to say what I've been trying to say this whole time, which is to say that when Christ spoke, he spoke God's words. When Christ acted, he did what God wanted him to do. He expressed God's will. When Christ performed a miracle, he healed a blind man. It was God healing that blind man through Christ. Where it says in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. I think that's what this means. This whole word became flesh. Is that God was working within Christ that his word, uh, whether you take that as a personification or something that is uh, just talking about God in action or however you take it. There are books and books and books written about John 1.1. It's, it it's complicated. But I think the point is that Christ was always transparent, that he was always deferring to God. And if you're curious what I think, I used to think number one, but I, I find myself more convinced by number two these days for grammatical reasons that I don't really have the time to get into right now. But uh, that's the idea that the word 
personifies an attribute of God. That, that the, the passage is talking about God's word, but he's talking about it as if it's a person using this figure of speech personification. Um, and we see that very similar thing happening in other places in the Old Testament, like Isaiah, where he says, I sent forth my word, and it did not return to me void. It went out and accomplished what task I sent for it to do, and that sort of thing. So let me conclude here. Let's do some review. In Christ, number one, in Christ's ministry on earth, he was subordinate to the Father. In Christ's ministry in heaven, he remains subordinate to the Father. In Christ's future ministry, he will continue to be subordinate to the Father. You seeing a theme? Number four, whether past, present, or future, Christ is all about giving God glory and following his direction. Number five, John 10.30 is about the oneness the Father and Son have in caring for the sheep. And number six, the word, or lowercase word, in John 1.1 has various meanings, various options for understanding it. John does not explain what he meant. What's clear, though, is that the word became a human being in Jesus Christ. And that as Christ lived, we saw what God wanted him to do, he did. And we saw that through his whole life. Next time, we're going to look at Jesus as God's representative, as God's agent, how Jesus is invested with certain titles and certain prerogatives that, in fact, do elevate him to this incredible status that we see in the New Testament. And uh, we'll do that in our continuing journey through our class, One God Overall. Well, that brings this episode to a close. What did you think? Do you have any questions or feedback? Come on over to restitutio.org and find episode 416, Jesus, God's subordinate son, and leave us your thoughts there. In our last episode, part five, Jesus, God's Messiah, M. Kara wrote in saying, I believe you are very wrong to declare God as, quote, literally the father, end quote, i.e. male progenitor of Jesus. This echoes Genesis 6 and similar pagan tales of male deities copulating with female humans. Luke considers Adam as the son of God presumably because he was a direct creation of God. Jesus could be seen as a second type of direct creation. If you, like Deuteronomy 32.6 and Isaiah 64.8, equate Father with Creator, then of course God is literally the creator of Jesus in Mary's womb, albeit in an unusual way, i.e. without the intervention of a male progenitor. Well, M.Kara, thanks for writing in. Really appreciate hearing your thoughts on this important subject. My remarks derived from Luke chapter 1, verse 35, where we read, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. When I read this when I read this important verse what I learn is that the reason this doesn't need to be the only reason but the reason here in Luke 135 that Jesus is both called holy and the son of God is because precisely because of the miracle of the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary in other words uh, bringing about the conception of 
the child in her womb. So that's why I said literally or biologically, although I'm less comfortable with that terminology, calling God the father of Jesus. Let's face it. Jesus did not have a human father. There's no human being that you can point to that we could say is the biological father of Jesus. So God is his only father from a physical point of view. Now, how God did that, we know, did not involve copulation, as you point out. Uh, We know it involved the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit and that this did not violate Mary's virginity in the process. And and the scripture leaves it there. There's no discussion of DNA or sperm and eggs. These are all concerns of a later age that ancient Jews just weren't weighed down by. And so they they don't worry about. From a theological point of view, I don't worry about it either. We, we, can, we can describe it very simply as a miracle in which she conceived and God begot or begat a son uh, with Mary without, you, without any kind of sexual intercourse. I'm not sure that we're differing all that much. I don't see this as a Genesis 6 type situation. I do not see this as a parallel to Zeus disguising himself as a snake or one of the gods disguising himself as a human being and then having sexual relations with someone. I don't think this really is even similar to that, but there are many opponents of Christianity who are very zealous to draw those parallels, and I I can see why you're sensitive to the subject. So hopefully we can come to an understanding. You know, the way you put it is a creative act. I'm totally comfortable with that. Someone called Mark wrote in and asked about the conflict between 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Corinthians 15.28. In the former, we find a promise that the son will reign on the throne forever, and in the latter, we hear about how he will reign until all enemies are under his feet, and then he will hand over the kingdom to the father so that the father will be all in all. This is uh, by somebody called Mark. Uh, well, Mark, I'm not really sure exactly how to resolve that those those two passages. I have a couple of thoughts. You offer your own theory, is that the kingdom is forever, and this is really what forever is about, not so much about who's ruling overall. And when you said that, Mark, it made me think, if Jesus spends... As a premillennial, I look at this as a thousand years. I realize that others don't accept that round number. Uh, The Amils tend to think that everything is magically going to change in the blink of an eye, not just uh, resurrection, but the entire world. Uh, But, uh, you know, I, I find that to be a bit of a stretch in light of just the analogy of how God works throughout all of history that he would suddenly just snap his fingers and, and cause everything to be achieved at once. Uh, It seems seems a bit fanciful. But anyhow, as I see it, Christ will reign for a thousand years and then hand it over to the Father. But uh, when when he's reigning, he's aligning the world to God's will. And that after that period ends, everyone is in step with what God wants 
And so when God comes down and begins his reign, if you want to even call it beginning, um, or takes over, so to speak, and the son hands over the keys to the father, that uh, it's not like anything's going to change, right? I mean, while the son was reigning, he was the vicegerent for the father, the one who represented the father's will and actions on earth. And so it's not like he'll hand it over and God is going to totally change how everything runs. Uh, it's, it's more like he gets a the machine going in the right direction, and now it continues in that de- direction forever. Uh, so I, I don't know if that helps to explain it. I would love to hear what you listeners think about this tension between the promise to reign forever on the throne of David, which is repeated in Luke chapter 1, not just in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17, but uh, also in Luke chapter uh, 1, verses 28 to 31 especially, and then how that plays up against 1 Corinthians 15, 28. I checked some commentaries I have, uh, both in 1 Samuel and in 1 Corinthians, and it seems like nobody else is really picking up on this. So I'm not really sure how other Christian theologians have responded to this issue, which is um, which is always helpful to, just to see what other views are out there. Another possibility is that when we say forever, we shouldn't we shouldn't imagine automatically a period that has no end, uh, because the word for forever, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, can just mean a really long time, and certainly a thousand years would be a really long time. Uh, I'm I'm less inclined to that point of view. Uh, But yeah, listeners, please help us out. Come on to restitutio.org, find episode 415, which is called Jesus, God's Messiah, and leave your remarks for Mark. Uh, Help him out. Help us all out. Uh, Because this is a genuine conundrum, and I would love to hear what your solutions are to this question. Thanks, everyone, for listening here to the end. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at restitutio.org. We'll see you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.